Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode two of On Purpose. This is Janice Alpert. Excited today to be here. Hi, Noah. Hi, Janice. It's great to be back with you for another episode. It is. I'm excited. And I'm excited about my special guest. Of course, every guest will be special. But today's guest, what I love about him, besides almost everything, is that he's led his life with purpose, but not necessarily on purpose. But he has an amazing story that he's going to share with us on how his life began and what transpired. And I think we're going to get some valuable lessons along the way. And my special guest is Harvey Cohn, who happens to be my husband. Hi, Harv. Hi, Janice. So we're going to start off by you just starting off to tell us a little bit about your growing up and what it was like for you. So why don't you begin by just sharing a little bit of your story? Okay, swell. So I don't remember much before I was five years old. I'm not sure exactly why. But I do remember one funny story my mom told me when I was like three or four, some relatives came over and they brought me a little toy. And I guess that was like the thing to do. And I looked at the toy and I said, I've already got that. And I threw it. (laughs) And my mother was so embarrassed. So that was, like I said, before I was five. So after five, I kind of remember going to school and I remember kindergarten. And remember, this is in 1947, it would be. Yes, my husband's a little older than me. I, let me just state that right up front. But go ahead, babe. Yeah, <laughs> and this was like the old days, nothing like today's education system. Anyway, when I first went to school, we lived almost a mile away from the grammar school and our next door neighbor a young girl was a teenager. Uh, My mom paid her to walk me to school because she was afraid I wouldn't know where to go. So the first few days, maybe first week or so, uh, she would walk with me. So I knew, you know, the path to school. I don't remember much about grammar school other than we just did whatever we were supposed to. And we all sat in these uh, chairs. Uh, It was actually a desk and a chair as one unit. And you just sat behind the person in front of you and you listened to the teacher, you did your work. And in those days, there wasn't a lot of homework for grammar school. We just learned the basic elementary subjects. And before I knew it, I had graduated grammar school. Okay. Can I interrupt? Sure. Let me just interject. Why don't you tell the listeners what your family life, my husband's the oldest and tell them what your living situation was back then. Sure. I'm the oldest. I had two brothers and a sister. And my brother next to me was just under two years younger than me. And then my youngest brother was eight years younger. And my sister actually came along when I was 16. So that was kind of a surprise. In those days, it was funny. Nobody talked about pregnancy. It was like a taboo subject. Secret. You could, yeah, <laughs> secret. You could be pregnant and they saw you were pregnant, but you didn't discuss it especially how it happened and and the whole birthing process and whatever. In fact, it was funny when my mom was going to give birth to my sister. I remember my dad came into the room where my two brothers and I were watching television. And he said, well, your mom and I were going to go out for ice cream. (laughs) And if we don't get back before it's bedtime, you can just put yourselves to bed and we'll just see you later. We said, okay, we didn't think anything of it. Again, this the whole secret world of birthing. So 
I do remember, though, that the next morning my dad came into our bedroom. And by the way, the three of us all slept in one room. We had a two bedroom apartment on the north side of Chicago, and we had one bed on each of the three walls. That was our bedroom. Anyway, he came in, turned on the lights, and he was wearing a big tag that said, it's a girl. And he was so excited (laughs) after three boys that he finally had his daughter. So I do remember him being the probably one of the most excited times I've seen him in his whole life. He was a pretty sedate kind of guy. Okay. So when you think about your parents, just in terms of when you think about what they did, like, I want to talk a little bit about what your dad did for a living and what your mom's role was and how, you know, do you think they were thinking about anything particularly deep back then? Or what was that like in terms of emotionally in your household? Well, there wasn't a lot of emotion in our household, to say the least. It was a kind of a traditional family. My dad worked and worked every day, very hard. And what did your dad do? And uh, he was in the woodworking business. They used to make furniture. And then in the late 40s, when TV started coming around, he started making wooden TV cabinets for the companies that made the electronics and put them in. So he stopped the furniture and started making TV cabinets. And that lasted for a number of years. and while as time goes on, people didn't buy the big wooden consoles. They bought the portable ones that sat on top of your kitchen counter or on top of a table in your living room. So that was the end of the wooden furniture and TV business. And during all this time, you and your siblings all lived in this little... We lived in a two-bedroom apartment. With your grandparents? My grandparents lived on the third floor. We lived on the first floor. And some strangers lived on the second floor. And where did you do a lot of your playing? Well, I lived in the city of Chicago. And so we did a lot of playing in the alleys (laughs) behind the house. The big thing was uh, hide and seek. Now, we also played war. You know, we Mm -hmm. had pretend guns and whatever. And in the warm weather, we played baseball. We called it line ball because you had to hit the ball down the alley. If it went into somebody's yard or on the roof of a garage, you were out. So it was kind of a funny way of playing. But the park that we could play in was pretty far away. So all the kids in the neighborhood, we all played in the alleys. So it was a very kind of simple. Yeah, people, like you said, you went to grammar school, you went to high school and just kind of hung out at home. And then you had family, you had your grandparents and whatever extended family for holidays, etc. So it was a very right yes. traditional, like you said, intact. You didn't really know any different that you were in a small little bedroom. That was just how your life was. No, I mean, our family, we only had one car. My dad drove to work. So, you know, we lived off of a main street and my mom would go shopping. And when my youngest brother was born, she would take him in the buggy and go shopping for food. And we didn't have a washing machine or dryer. So she would take the clothes to the laundromat. But I do remember it was funny. And you would think today nobody would do this. She would take my brother, Eric's brother, in the buggy. And she'd go to the food store. And she'd sit the buggy with him in it outside the food store. And then she went in to buy the food. And then came out and put the food in the buggy with him. And then went home. Nobody was kidnapping the baby. Nobody was kidnapping (laughs) anybody in those days. It was kind of a crazy way thinking about today. You would never do anything like that. Right. In high school, you start thinking like, were your parents very, you must go to college or you must come into the family business? Like, what was the messages that you got growing up in terms of what you should be doing? It was never like you should go to college. Our family was very education oriented. So, 
it was kind of an automatic thing and all our friends were going to colleges. So it was just something you did. It's like you went to grammar school, then you went to high school, then you went to college. That was the traditional way people did their life. So in my senior year, I started thinking about where I was going to go to college. Most of my friends from school were going to the University of Illinois in Champaign. And you know what? I There was a lot of cliques in, in high school. And if you didn't belong to a clique or a, a group, then, you, you know, you weren't socially acceptable. So I, I didn't like that whole aura of how people ran their lives. So I decided that I wanted to go to somewhere different. So I actually applied to MIT on a whim. And I applied to the University of Wisconsin and the uh, Purdue University. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do at that Well, point? I was always interested in how things work. So I, you know, I used to like when I grew up in the neighborhood, they were still building homes because all the city lots weren't uh, already built. So I used to go and watch the construction, you know, how they would dig the foundation and the carpenters and the plumbers. That, that always fascinated me. And it still does. And Sometimes still does. we have to pull over for him to look. But go ahead. I digress. Right. So I used to go and I could watch for hours, just some machine digging a big hole in the ground. It just fascinated me. I always had that technical and how things are put together. Did you ever feel like just going back, would you have ever labeled that like, hmm, I wonder if this is one of my purposes or you just had a gut feeling like this was an interest and I think I'm going to pursue it? I didn't even think that. I just (laughs) thought this was fun to watch and I loved watching them. So I would just go there and watch for hours. But take note, if you love something, believe it or not, pay so close attention, you are already beginning to tap into a purpose. Go, babe. Right. So um, anyway, so uh, I felt I wanted to go into some kind of an engineering curriculum. So Wisconsin, Illinois, or not Illinois. Well, I actually did Illinois just as a fallback and Purdue. And I actually got it. I didn't get accepted to MIT. Because their loss. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, it actually worked out fine. But I, I did get accepted to Wisconsin, Illinois, and Purdue. And I, again, a, a lot of my friends were going to Wisconsin, and I had heard that was a big party school, and that's really not what I was looking for. And I didn't want to go to Illinois where everybody was going. So I, my fallback was Purdue. And it actually turned out to be a very good decision because I had a really, really good college life. I joined a fraternity and people talk about the four years of college as being the most memorable. And they are correct. Uh, It it was really, I got away from home. I uh, learned how to live on my own, take care of myself without my mother at my side. But why don't you tell what you initially started off as? Oh, I started off as an electrical engineer because I thought it would have to do with uh, motors and, uh, you know, how electrical things work. And I found out right in the beginning that electrical engineering was all theoretical. It was formulas and it was math and it was absolutely nothing that I was interested in. So after one semester, I changed curriculums and I went from uh, electrical engineering and I took my as my major to be industrial engineering, which was uh, how factories are run, how factories are laid out and time studies and, and all the things that you know, really were interesting to me. But take note, he had a feeling like, hmm, this electrical engineering is not for me. And he had enough wherewithal without doing like tons and tons of 
meditation and insight. Not that I'm not for meditation. I think my listeners are getting the drift that I probably do, but you don't have to just trust that gut instinct. So he switched my, go ahead. You switched majors. Right, I switched majors and you graduated. Um, and uh, yeah, I graduated. But because I had lost one semester of the uh, certain of the, the courses, I had to go to summer school. Well, actually I did it at home. I took one course for three summers. And so that got me back up so I could graduate at the same time that, you know, everybody else was. And what was your first job after college? So then I was a senior in college and in colleges, they have a lot of companies come down and do interviewing, looking for new employees. And so I was interviewing a bunch of the companies that came to Purdue, uh, again, a technical school. So these people were looking for technically oriented people. And one of the companies I interviewed was IBM. And I went back for multiple interviews with them. And while I was trying to decide what I wanted to do, and I really liked IBM because I had taken some computer courses in college, and that seemed like an interesting field. And don't forget, this was back, you know. Yeah, this was in 1964. So brand new, but he had a feeling like, I think computers might be something something good. Something good and something I would be interested in. So while I was deciding what to do, one of the fellows that was in the class ahead of me that graduated had come back for a visit. And we were friendly when he was still a senior and I was a junior. And he got to talking to me and he said, so what are you thinking of doing, Harv? I said, well, IBM has been interviewing me and I think they're going to offer me a job. So he said, well, why would you do that? You have a family business, don't you? And I said, yeah, we do. He said, well, why would you go work for strangers when you could go to work for your family and have security in your job? I said, well, I never really thought of it that way. And he said, here's the thing. If you work for your family and you don't like it, you could always call IBM back up and say, you know what? I tried this thing with my family and it kind of didn't work out. So is that position still available? And well, as the story goes, that never happened. And I've been in the business with the family for Oh my gosh, 55 years now, I think. And what is that family business? Because how that started is, well, I shared a little bit from the beginning of my podcast, but tell them your... Yeah, well, so uh, after my dad left the woodworking business, he was actually a silent partner with my uncle and my uncle's father-in-law. And they were in a a work glove business. They had a little uh, storefront uh, factory in Chicago. And they had like, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 employees and they would make leather work gloves. I just have to direct. They started this really basically from nothing. So that's why the story is so, to me, fantastic. I mean, just they came back from the war. His dad, yeah, uncle. my mom came back from the war. And actually what happened was he met my aunt who he ended up marrying and her father was Mr. Maggot. And that's the name of the glove company is Maggot Glove Company. And he worked for another glove company. And after my uncle married my aunt, his father-in-law, Sam Maggot, said to him, you know, we ought to really open our own glove company because I know all about gloves and how to make them. And we could have our own company and we wouldn't have to work for somebody else. So my uncle said, that seemed like a good idea. And he came to my dad and they all agreed. So my dad was a silent partner and my uncle and Mr. Maggot started the business on a shoestring. 
And like I said, that was in 1946 after the war. So my dad, when the TV uh, cabinet business kind of petered out, he closed down that factory and he came to work with the glove company, which was very small at that time. And so Sam Maggot, my uncle's father-in-law, had just about ready to retire. And so when my dad came in, he decided to retire. And my uncle took over the manufacturing end of the business. And my dad was the salesman. So when you decided upon graduating, like maybe I should do the family business, what job did your dad and uncle give you as a 22-year-old, like you don't know what you're doing person? (laughs) Right. And that was kind of funny. So I said to my dad, you know, I've been thinking that, you know, IBM was going to offer me a job, but my friend from college and blah, blah, blah. He said, you know, you should really try to work in the family business. So I said, okay, so what do you think about that, dad? And my dad was very excited. He said, that's great. I can't wait for you to get happy for you to come in. So I, I show up for work the first day and he said, well, you'll start out as a salesman. So here's a catalog. And here's what some of the gloves are. Okay, that's your education. (laughs) Now go out and sell these gloves. And I didn't know anything about gloves. I didn't know what I was selling. I didn't know anything. Nothing to do with engineering. Nothing to do with engineering. At that time. And there was no training. It was like, here's some gloves and here's a catalog. Go go knock on some doors and, and see, you know, what you can do. So that's what I started doing. And my territory was the northwest side of Chicago and the state of Indiana, not the steel mill area, because my cousin was in the business and he did the steel mills along uh, the north side of Indiana. So on Monday morning, I would get up early and get in my car and start driving to some little town in Indiana. And I'd work my way from one little town to another little town, because most of these little towns only had two or three industries. And I would finally end up in like a big city like Fort Wayne, or Indianapolis, or Bloomington. And I would work the state of Indiana until Thursday afternoon. And then I would drive home, get home maybe eight o'clock at night. So I was basically in Indiana, like four days a week. And then the next week, I would work the northwest side of Chicago. So I would have some, you know, family time and, you know, social time with my friends. And I was starting to date then. And, and that's how my life was. Indiana one week, northwest side of Chicago and the next week. And as far as your thought process, I mean, you had, and by that time you had moved out and you had your own apartment. Yeah, and- well, that, that's a funny story. So when I went to college, remember I said there were three of us in one bedroom, one in each wall. But my sister had been born then. I, she was born, I was 16 and a half. So when I was 18 or almost 18, I went to college. So she was like a year and a half old. So when I left to go to college, they moved my sister from my mom and dad's bedroom into my bed. So I no longer had a bed. And so what they did is they bought a hide bed that they put in the den. So when I came home on weekends and for vacation, I would sleep on the hide bed. And every day I would have to fold up my bed. So it wasn't quite so bad because, you know, for most of the year I was away at school. And it was just, you know, the, the week of Christmas and, you know, the spring break and, you know, a long weekend for Thanksgiving. And then, you know, a couple, three months in the summer. And I always had summer jobs. But then I graduated school and I came back and I was still 
living on this hide bed And I had like about uh, two feet of closet rod where all my clothes were. And I said to myself, this is crazy. I'm living like a nomad. I'm almost like a homeless person. So I said to my parents, I said, you know what? I think I'm going to move out and find an apartment. I thought I was really shocking them, but they said they thought that was an okay idea. So again, you had a little tingle inside, like I got to do something different here. Well, yeah, because this living on this hide bed and this little closet, I mean, it just, it just wasn't working for me. So I went around, found an apartment and my mom kind of helped me decorate it. And then I was on my own, but I was still doing the, you know, the working one week in Indiana and one week in Chicago. Right. And so then you didn't meet. Yeah. So when I lived, it was one of these apartment buildings along Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. And it was actually turned out that I had a really great apartment by just by happenstance. It was on the top floor. It was a 29 story building and it was looking south. And, you know, I had these great views of Chicago, especially at night. So anyway, that was a great bachelor pad. And I uh, joined a ski club that met in the building in the, you know, uh, entertainment room. And it just happened that my future wife and her girlfriend, who didn't live in the building, were looking for men to date. So they came and joined the ski club also. And, you know, I thought she was a pretty cute girl. And, you know, one thing led to another. We got engaged and got married. Right. And then shortly thereafter, you had two kids. But and during, well, during the, there's another interesting thing. This was during the Vietnam oh, War. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that right, part. Right, right. So in order to not be drafted and go to Vietnam, I joined the National Guard in Chicago. And, you know, that was this the weekend warriors, as they called us. You know, we went away two weeks in the summer to summer camp. And it was a way to, you know, stay out of being drafted and going into a war where you could be killed. <laughs> and I had some friends who were drafted and, you know, the, they did not have good experiences um, in Vietnam. I'm, I don't think anybody did. No. So, but anyway, I did have interesting experiences in the National Guard. For one, when Martin Luther King was killed, we were all called up to, you know, guard the city. And, you know, that was an interesting week when the city was on fire. And you were you know, around during that Chicago was, 7 trial. Yeah. And then which is uh, now when, when the 1968 Democratic Convention was in Chicago, you know, there was all talk about Abby Hoffman and the rest of those people, they were going to have protests and there was going to be a lot of uh, insurrection. So the, the guard was again called out by the governor and the mayor. It was Mayor Daly at that time because he was very tough. And he said, nobody is going to take over my city, especially these hippies. <laughs> so um, I was in this, I was down and wearing the uniform and I was probably in one of those movies <laughs> But I do remember it was the center of attention, especially the last night when they were going to do the final speeches and they were marching. I remember from the Conrad Hilton downtown to the amphitheater, which is, I think, on 22nd Street. And, you know, it was all announced that the hippies were going to do that. And the mayor didn't want them to disrupt the convention. So halfway between uh, the downtown and the amphitheater, they set up uh, these barricades with the Jeeps and the other army trucks. And that was the point of no return for the marchers. Do you and, remember feeling scared and a little nervous? Uh, well, we didn't know what was happening. It just seemed like a big party to us until the marchers came down and 
they were on the they were told they could not go any further. They would have to disperse and they weren't going to disperse. And all and it was funny, too. They had all the the uh, TV stations were there with the look like uh, recreational vehicles and the cameras were on the roofs of the recreational vehicles with the searchlights so they could have light to film all what was going on. I was thinking, my God, it was, it was like a circus. And I was right there in the midst of it. And all of a sudden, uh, when they, the marchers came and they formed this line and we all had our bayonets and, and we were told, if they attack you, you can shoot. But all of us were just, we were weekend warriors and we weren't shooting anyone. So Tess was like just this big picnic yeah. and it was kind of last. It was quite an experience. It was quite an experience. But what happened was when, when push came to shove, all of a sudden there was tear gas flying everywhere. It, it, it was all around everybody. And so we put on our gas masks and there was just mayhem going on for at least an hour. And in fact, I got hit by a brick during this because I was driving a Jeep and they were throwing bricks and rocks. And so the medics, again, weekend warriors, put me on their ambulance and they took me to the hospital to make sure that I didn't have, you know, more injuries. And I remember in the waiting room of the emergency room, I was covered with tear gas, which is a powder. And it was kind of drifting off of me. And all of a sudden, all the people in the waiting room started crying. So they made me leave the waiting room until it was my turn to get an x-ray. And that was, was kind of funny. It was, it was something. It was, it was, kind of, it was something. something. Yeah, it was something. Right. Yeah. So, But at least you had an inkling, like, I don't want to be drafted. So you knew to join the reserves. I'm happy that you did. Yeah, okay. right. So you meet your wife. Now, let's go back to kind of what happened at Maggot at the company. You know, you had two children. We'll get back to that in a second. But as you stopped being a salesperson at some point. Right. Well, what happened? I was a salesman for uh, almost a year and a half. And then my brother, who was uh, uh, just under two years younger than me, he joined and he kind of took over my territory. And so they needed more administrative people in the office. So I left my salesman position and became one of the administrators in the office, you know, working on orders and talking to customers on the phone. There was a lot of those kind of things. Remember, it was a very little company at that time, At that time, of course. Then, you know, some years later, my youngest brother and my nephew joined the company and, and they started selling and they started hiring some other salesmen. And your the cousins. And, your and my cousins. cousins, yeah, cousins came in. So the company was growing and, you know, we were becoming, you know, more than just a Chicago company. We started selling in Wisconsin and Michigan and Indiana and Iowa and Ohio. And, you know, little by little, we started, then we made a bigger catalog and we sent the catalog out across the country. And all of a sudden the orders were coming in and just all kinds of things were happening, all good things. And the company was growing. And then when did you move into doing more using your engineering? Because one of the things I want to say is, of course, I love your story, but sometimes we may do something. So I feel like Harvey was trained in engineering, but his initial part of his career, that part of him was not fully utilized until later. But he always still loved that and still does to this day. So share how it moved okay, to right. using, in my mind, your true skills and talents. Okay. So as the company was growing, there was a building that came up for sale just a half a block down from us. And so they bought it. And my dad said to me, well, your job is to go in that building and get it all ready to be a warehouse for us. So I was there working by myself with my tools. 
taking down walls and building balconies and, you know, setting literally. it up. Yeah, literally. Yeah, literally. Right, right. Setting it up to become a mini warehouse for, you know, the company. And that was one of the first things where I started using my talents. Do you remember feeling like I'm enjoying this? Like- yes, I did. I was enjoying it a lot. I didn't know I had a purpose. But <laughs> I, I was just enjoying, you know, figuring out stuff. You know, it was a problem. Here, uh, here's a solution. And so I, I got a lot of satisfaction in doing that. And, and if I may interrupt, sure. he still does that to this day. Right. If he sees something not in order, I don't have that ability at all, but he has the ability to see a problem in terms of what's going on structurally or whatever the problem is in terms of whether it be a building or even in our house, whatever, he knows how to fix. He's known for that in the whole family. He fixes everything, yeah, but def- he can he can see it in his head how to make it right. And he's a perfectionist, so it's always perfect. So yeah, go ahead. so I, I have become the family fixer for all my cousins, my nephews, everybody. They, they call kids, me for everything, kids, yeah, yeah, either for to do it or actually for advice. So the next thing that kind of happened was our sewing manufacturing operation was expanding, and they moved. They were going to move it from the first floor of the building to the second floor where we had more room. And so my uncle asked me to lay out how the sewing machine should be laid out to become the most efficient operation. So that was really, I was just, was I was job. all, yes, I was all over that. And, you know, I laid it out and then I did all the calculations and I showed it and I went to my uncle and my dad and I said, well, here's what I figured out and here's how it should be. And here's why it should be this way. And they were very impressed and they did exactly what I said they should do. And of course it came out. Even now, when and because they bought another building, which I'll tell you about, and offices had to be changed. When Harvey wants, when they had to do relayouts of the office or whatever, he had a system back, whatever, 50 years ago, where he'd put it on a board and kind of like in the old, and he still has used that system and it's always perfect. Well, what I did was I took a piece of ceiling tile, which was like Solitex kind of material, and I put graph paper on it. And then I made cutout of desks and file cabinets and the printers and whatever to the scale. And glue it down. No, I put them down with pins, with straight pins. pins. So that way I could move them around. And, you know, because you have the outline of where the office is. So how does everything fit in there? You know, so I did that. And obviously, because it was the scale, it was all perfect. And how many times would you say you've done that for me? I get it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Between offices and. I've tried that once. And then we did the, when we moved, I did that layout. And then we added a second office. Then we added a third office. Then we added a fourth office. That was all while we were in Chicago. And I did that system for at least five different office moves and And expansions. And each time you did it, how did you feel on the inside? Oh, I felt good because it would, you know, I make my little cutouts. And I put them down. I show everybody, here's where your desk is going to be. And, you know, they couldn't visualize it other than I had this little board with all these little cutouts with pins holding them down. But, you know, then when all the desks were moved in on a weekend and everybody came in Monday morning, there it was. Perfect. Perfect. And he also has the patience of a saint. So he can see it and then do it. And when he does it like this, to me, I would have such anxiety. But he can sit down and do it. And he feels you can hear in his voice. Like, this is great. I'm good at it. It's going to come out great because it always does. So you kind of, even though you didn't use your talent and in my mind, your purpose initially, you ended up for the last, you said you've been at Maggot now 55 55 years. years, So 
probably I've been doing that for at least 45 right. of those years. And you love it still. Yeah, I he still, still goes it. to work, by the way. I yeah. mean, not during COVID, but he has missed it. OK, yeah. now let's just talk a little bit about your personal life while he's doing. The company is growing. Harvey has a very influential and instrumental part to keep the building going, organized, et cetera. I don't know what they would have done. I still don't know what they're going to do without it because he's still doing it. So meanwhile, he's married, has two children. And then after some time, what happened in marriage number one? Well, and- marriage number one didn't work out. And it ended up, that was uh, 16 years. And uh, it ended up that my kids actually live with me because that was the best solution all around. At that time? At that time, yeah. And so to say the least, I was terrified. Here I was, a working guy. And now besides working, I'm the dad and the mom. And I called myself the dad mom. But even then he had like this gut feeling because of some of the dynamics that were going on. Like, I have to do this. Now that I know Harvey so well, when I think about him working 40, 50 hours a week, having two kids that he had to drive carpool and get to point A to point B, they're sporting things, et cetera, all on his own while working. But he knew inside this is going to be the best for my children. Right. Yeah. So, um, which it was, yeah, and they were at that time they were teenagers, so it was not like I was changing diapers, but I still had it like Janice is saying, coordinate the carpooling and figure out and the meals. And so, what I really did is I got up every morning and said, (laughs) Okay, today's the day we're gonna do this for tonight for dinner, and I didn't worry about tomorrow, I just worried about that day. He's very zen, he's in the here and now without even trying. One of the things I admire about him, so. And that's why I want to, it's so important. I love, wanted to have him be my first interviewer to, again, remind the listeners that, you know what, just be in touch with yourself. If you feel alive, then you're on the right track. So, and when it feels icky, you got to do a little detour. So he was a single dad for a while. Yeah, I was a single dad for a while, you know, and my kids needed a house. They had to go find a lot. They had to find a builder, had to build a house. I mean. (laughs) You know, again, one day at a time, get through this day. Mm-hmm. That seemed like the thing I had to do. And, and, you know, I got through it. You know, as I look back, I said to myself, wow, there, was, there wasn't any planning. The, only, the planning was one day. What mm-hmm. do I do today to get by today? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, well, except in some I would take the kids on vacation. So that obviously was a little more planning. But other than that, it was one day at a time. Then? And then I met my second wife. And because I kind of felt that the kids needed a mom. I mean, I was called the mom dad, but I didn't have, you know, all the qualities that uh, a kid really needs to grow up. You were overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed. Yeah. (laughs) Understandably so. Right. So I met this woman and she was, uh, didn't have any kids, you know, it all kind of worked. Yes, it did. And you have an, and then then from that marriage, I had my third child, which was uh, my daughter, Brittany. And uh, she's much younger than my other two kids. And she works in the family business. Right. As everybody else did that yep. one time or another. Yep. All the kids and, you know, I think you're in generation. We're in generation four right now. Right. So that's how many people in the Cone family work in the business and the family and the business has done so well that it can support all these families. Except for a few Nephews and nieces who, didn't you know, lived to. out of town. Yeah, or didn't want yeah, to. Yeah, didn't want to. You know, they had different uh, ideas about how they were on it yeah. their life. You don't have to go in the No, you know, there was it's no. Just... It was always available. Right. That, that was an option if you wanted to. 
And like I said, most of us uh, kind of followed that path. Okay, so then second marriage, because people are wondering, what about us? Second yeah, marriage. Second marriage that didn't, didn't work, work out. Didn't work out uh, for all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. And so then I became a bachelor again and was carefree and living, you know, the life of Riley because still my, working and still and, working and, yeah. and doing all your, you know, office layout stuff and making sure the building now, you know, manufacturing, everything was working. Right. And uh, my kids had grown up by then and were, you know, on their own. And, you know, my youngest was, you know, after the divorce was living with her mom. So I was kind of like a bachelor again. And I was just doing my bachelor thing. And one of the things I did was I built the house that we're now living in. And that started right after I got divorced from the second wife. And that was my therapeutic healing healing from the marriage. Kind of another way of, of his, using his talents of his purpose is that he, he built a house that in his mind, if I may, he wanted it to be the family kept growing. Everybody was getting married and there was more grandchildren. And, you know, he's one of four, as he mentioned. So he, we really like to have, he wanted to have family holidays well, in, in like a big room, which is what we have. And we have all the family here for every holiday. Well, the, the way that kind of evolved is uh, when I was growing up and, you know, I was married even the first time, we would all go to my mom's house for the holidays. And uh, as the family grew, we grew from having the, the meal in the dining room to the meal in the dining room, plus a table in the living room, plus a table in the kitchen. And then the table in the hallway. So it was getting more and more overwhelming. And my mom and dad were getting older. And so what happened was when I was going to build the house that we're living in now, I always liked the idea that the family got together, even if it was only a few times a year for the holidays. That was something that everybody could look forward to. So when I built this house, I built it with a giant great room. The great room is about 2,000 square feet. It's almost the size of a house. And it's got these two very long dining room tables that when the leaves aren't in, it'll sit 10 people at each table. So that's 20 people. And when you put in all the leaves and all the extra chairs, it seats 36. So as, like I said, the family grew and the holidays came around, it was always at Harvey's house for the holidays, which, is, which it still it is. It still is to this well, day, except, except during COVID when yeah, you know, we obviously. couldn't get together. And now it's Harvey and Janice's. Okay, so now yeah. you're single and you're kind of dating, but nobody really hits you. You're still doing your thing at work. Right. Kids are grown. You see your younger daughter, you know, periodically, you know, weekly. Of course, you are. Uh, I see all the time. See yeah. her all the so, time. Right. And, but you're still thinking, I, I, you built this house and I can say, that he built the house with the master bedroom having two sinks. He was looking for a partner that he knew inside he still wanted to have a life partner. Right. So what happened was my aunt, actually, uh, my uncle, the one that started the company, Maggot, Vera Maggot, she called me up and said, you know, I've got this family friend that got a daughter that's, you know, near your age. And she's single and, you know, you might. Quite a bit younger, but go ahead. Uh, okay. <laughs> Eight years. All right. But you might, you know, think about if you wanted to go out with her. And I said, well, I'll think about it. And um, then like a month or two passed and, and she called me again, as it turned out, at the beckoning of Janice's mother to set me up with Janice. So I said, okay, you know, 
you think she, I would really get along with her? And my aunt said, oh, she's a very nice girl. Well, so one thing led to another and we had our first date and we met at a restaurant actually near where Janice worked. And we had a good time at the dinner and Janice immediately went home and called all her friends and said, you know, he's marriage material. And I went home and turned on the television set. <laughs> And, and I didn't know what the rules of dating were at that time. But actually, my son had given me some rules when I was single then. He said, well, here's the thing. If you really like a girl, you should call her on Monday for the next weekend, because that shows you're interested in her. And if you called her on like Thursday, she probably thinks you probably couldn't get another date and so she's now second fiddle but our first date was a wednesday a wednesday right and, and i thought and from my point of view we had a great time he should have called me the next day to say hey we had a great time let's see each other this weekend but no call no because th that was not according to my son's rules which you got a call on a monday so you know i didn't call her thursday friday saturday sunday and i was going to call her monday which was the appropriate time to show you were interested <laughs> and that you know you want to have a date for the next weekend so I'm waiting for a Monday evening and I'm watching TV and lo and behold, I fall asleep in front of the TV and I wake up. It was like 10, 15. I'm thinking, oh, nuts. I missed this window of opportunity and I can't call her 10, 15 because I didn't know if she was an early, went to bed early or whatever her thing was. So I called her Tuesday morning and the first thing she said to me was, where have you been? <laughs> the direct person that I am. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And she said, well, we had this good time Wednesday. Why didn't you call me? And I was speechless because I didn't know what the rules were of that you're supposed to call the next day or whatever and say you had a good time and whatever. So we got over it. We and, got over it. And, and, and here we are. And here we are. But one of the other funny things, and, and then we're going to kind of wrap up here, but was when I first he wanted me to see the house. So the house had been built at that point, maybe a year or so. Uh, yeah, just yeah, over a year. Just a yeah. year. And so he wanted me, to, he, he invited me over for dinner to see the house. And when I pulled up to the house, which is a beautiful home, I remember thinking, oh my goodness. And then when I walked in, I said, I'm going to get married. If I marry this man, I had only known him a few weeks. I'm going to get married right over there by this beautiful open window. And that's exactly what happened. We, we got married there. Like a little, like a year okay. later, more or less. Right. Yes, we did. And here we are. Here we are. Still. After a year of COVID, still right. happy, still love each other. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Still happy I made that decision. Oh, thanks, sweetie. I am too. All right. So when you think back, you know, about your purpose that, you know, you look back at your 70 odd year life and you think, you know, I had an inkling from the get go that I was always interested in fixing things. And you, I, you didn't mention this, but I know you played with your erector sets and you just were always interested in building and you carried that through throughout your career, even though at the beginning you were sales. Would you say like, and you still love it. Do you sort of feel like that's part of, you know, what your talents are here? On oh, this? yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, once I, I, I never really liked sales. That was not my thing. You know, the gift of glib and, you know, shooting this stuff with all these uh, purchasing agents. So once I came in and did the administrative and then started doing the construction and the rehabbing. And then when we bought different buildings as the company grew, I was always in charge of the fixing and the building of the warehouse and the offices and everything. That was my niche. And I just loved doing it. And in fact, I remember when we, we grew to our, our second big building that I was so excited that I would get up at five o'clock in the morning to go to work, which was unheard of because I used to, you know, get up at seven and get to work at eight. 
but because I was so enthralled with what I was doing, and it was my purpose. I didn't know it. Exactly. I just enjoyed doing right. what I was doing. So that to me is the big key of this whole interview and the hopefully in general, the podcast is that if you feel alive, you know, you're on the right path. And even going back, I'm just going to say this for him about his marriages that those were he's you know, obviously we're not going to go through whole detail, but those were super hard decisions for him to get divorced as it was for me as well. But he knew inside that, you know what, this isn't right. And even though I'm scared, you know, especially when he had to raise the kids alone and he was overwhelmed and the same with the second time that it just wasn't working. And he thought, you know what, I just, I have to do what feels right. Now, do I think knowing him as I do that he spent hours thinking like, oh, is this the right, but he knew. So I feel like if you can be in touch with that little inner voice inside that that's a pathway to what your soul's purpose is. So I want to make sure everyone can hear that loud and clear that what I love about, well, I love a million things about my wonderful husband, but he's a great example of he knew and he knew what was right. And he's had, if I may, I think a pretty fulfilling life. It's, yes. Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think it would change anything. Well, I might. No, because I've got these great kids from each of the marriages. So how right. could I say I would go back and, and do it differently? And you know? and look what's happened. Looks what added on to your life when Janice came along. I think oh. you care about my children too. Yes, so, I do. Yes, anyways, I do. We, we, yeah, we've had a great, you know, we've traveled the world, et cetera. So, you know, it's trying to remember that whatever's happened in your life, there's an opportunity. You can be all icky and bitter about it, or you can think, okay, that happened. What am I going to do to continue to move forward? So like, I feel Harvey did that with each challenge that he had, he went ahead. And again, without doing hours and hours of, he just, this is what he did. He listened to his inner self and said, okay, I've got to move forward. And he has a generally pretty positive attitude. So he used that as well. And you did seek out some help along the way, but Mostly it was just an inner voice and inner guidance system that I believe we all have. So any other closing thoughts on no, your purpose? No. But I do. Yeah. One, one thought. I do remember our, our first date oh, and, okay. and I said to her, do you like to travel? And she said, my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. And I thought of myself, this is a really good girl. Oh, that's yeah. so sweet. And we've yeah. traveled. We've been everywhere. We've been yeah. to Australia. We've actually went to Vietnam for a vacation, which yeah. was sort of interesting considering he tried so hard not to be in Vietnam and Africa. We've been all through Europe. We've, we've traveled the world and we're continuing to. Well, now we haven't gone anywhere in the last you know, year, but but yeah. So, yeah. So I love your story. Thank you for sharing with us, honey. I'm going to finish off with a quote for our listeners, which today's quote is actually by Buddha. And it goes like this. It's short. Your purpose in life is to find your purpose and give your whole heart and soul to it. So again, your purpose in life is to find your purpose and give your whole heart and soul to it. And that's what I feel Harvey did without really searching super hard, just by listening to his own inner voice. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us, honey. And to all who are listening, I hope you're having a great day and that you're living your life with purpose and maybe even on purpose. So until next time, bye.